do it as long as I'm here for the difficult passages. God puts them in there on purpose. He wants us to dig. We keep coming to Sunday school. We got Romans 9 in view. Get ready. Thank God we got Dr. Lawson. All right, turn to John 4. Didn't want to leave you hanging. We have continued uh, or finished Colossians. And week before last, we were here with the woman at the well. So I I wanted to finish part two because we kind of left you with a, a cliffhanger. Such a fascinating and profound conversation that we have here between Jesus and the woman at the well. Last time we covered verses 1 to through 15, and today we're going to pick up where we left off in verse 16, but we want to do a quick review so we can get back into the flow of the, the total context of this amazing passage. But before we do that, you need to know that the real heart of this conversation between Jesus and the woman occurs in verses 21 to 24. And there we move from a lesson from Jesus in evangelizing, which we pretty much looked at last time, over to the subject of worship. Worship is a huge subject, as you know, and, and there's a, there's a lot that we can say about it. But in the biggest picture understanding, we back off of it. Worship is synonymous with salvation. As you know, there are only two kinds of people in the world. There are people who worship God acceptably, and there are people who do not. There are people who are regenerate, and there are people who are unregenerate from every tribe and tongue and nation. There are saved people and there are lost people. And that's it. There, there are no in-betweens. Now, you, you, unless you count the people who are in the process of the effectual call, but, but those people are irresistibly on their way to being saved. So when we talk about worship, we're, we're talking about the essence of what it means when we use that phrase to be saved, to confess Jesus as Lord, to submit to God and his revelation of Christ, to come to Christ on his terms of repentance and faith. That means salvation. Then what I'm trying to say is, is an act of obedient worship. That's what salvation is. It's, it's bowing the knee to God, the triune God. So really we could say that the, the, the purest definition of worship is salvation, is your 
bowing the knee. In fact, a person cannot worship at all unless they have truly been redeemed. A person who has not surrendered to the lordship of Christ in saving faith can go to church. They can bow their head in prayer. They can sing the hymns and they can do all the things, but they're not worshiping. They're not capable of worshiping in spirit and in truth because they have not been obedient to God in believing his gospel. So you have to understand, you you, you can't bow the knee to God truly in any way until you have bowed the knee in the, listen, command to obey the gospel. The gospel is not just a proclamation. It is a proclamation. It is necessary to use words to preach the gospel. You can't preach it without them. But it's also a command to repent and to believe. So here in our text, while the discussion is on the theme of worship, because that's how the woman introduces it, it also really is really a profound insight into the nature of of true salvation being worship. And I hope to, to flesh that out to you today. And as we're going to see, Jesus is going to lead this woman to, to, to be a worshiper at the same time that he's leading her to salvation. Now, let's go back over what we learned so far. We want to get this setting back in our thinking. Remember, Jesus has left Judea. He's heading north back to Galilee. His ministry still overlapping with John the Baptist. And already the religious leaders are hatching their plots. And Jesus doesn't have time for that at this point. And so he's heading up for safer ground from those guys. And he heads north and he goes right through Samaria, right through the middle, which as you remember is the land of the Samaritans, a a people who long ago had abandoned their Judaism. They had intermarried with idol worshiping pagans and they were so despised by the Jews. Remember, I told you that many Jews would not travel through Samaria. They go way over to the coast and go up and around or over the Jordan and go up and around. So they, they didn't even want to get Samaritan dirt on their feet, but not Jesus. He went straight through and we estimate he started out early. Remember, I told you it was a long, rigorous, hot hike, 20 miles up and down hills. And he finally gets to this location where Jacob's well is. It's near the Samaritan town of Sychar, which was about a mile away from the well. He slumps down at the well. He's completely exhausted from this hike. And then this woman comes up, woman of Samaria. The Bible says the sixth hour. Remember, that was noon and that was unusual because the women normally came at 
dusk to draw the water, which they had to do every day because that was the coolest part of the day. And the reason, as we discovered last time, that she came in the middle of the day at the hottest part of the day is because this was a very immoral woman. More than likely, she just really didn't want to run into any of the other women in the town and have any kind of situation go on with them being a woman who had had five husbands and was currently living in adultery. Some scholars think that there were there were wells that were even closer to Sychar and she went to the one that was absolutely the furthest away within walking distance just to absolutely make sure that she didn't run into anybody and that she would always be at that well by herself. Whatever her motivations. Isn't it really interesting to consider that God on that day had her right where she was supposed to be? Think about that. I'm sure glad that God had this very immoral sinner right where he needed to be when he came after me. You understand, he comes after you. You don't go after him naturally. He comes to you. So so Jesus is, is sitting here. He's completely worn out. Remember verse 7. He's sitting there. There she is. Not expecting this man to be sitting that she doesn't know. She's never met. And he just says to her, give me a drink. And remember, we we called this our first point, unexpected condescension. Jesus initiates this conversation. Give me a drink. Now, this is shocking. Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jewish men didn't speak to women in public, especially rabbis. On top of that, this is a very immoral woman. But remember, I told you that none of that was a barrier for Jesus. None of that stopped him from being on mission at this well to evangelize this woman. Jesus paid no attention at all ever to the unbiblical traditions of the Jews. And no, he was not there to, nor did he wash her feet when he was there. And this woman recognizes how very unusual this is that this man just said to me, give me a drink. Verse nine, look at it. She says, how is it? that you being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman. And we saw last time, unexpected condescension moves now to unsolicited mercy because she's not asking for anything. But he is going to offer her something. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, 
if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now notice, she she's not making a request here. He made the request. He initiated it. And then he takes her to this offer. An offer that comes from God. And let me also remind you from last time about that word, ask, connected with the word gift. This is what sets the gospel of Christianity apart from every other single solitary religion in the world. Every other religion in the world says, do this, do these things, and then God will accept you, and then you will be right with God. Do these moral things. Do these ceremonial things. These ritual things, uh, better yourself, uh, be the best kind of person that you can possibly be, <coughs> excuse me, and then God will accept you. Well, that's not what Christianity says. Only Christianity says, ask. That's all a sinner can do. All the sinner can do is ask. It's like the publican in Luke 18. He fell on his face. What did he say? God, be merciful to me. A sinner. All the sinner can do is cry out for the living water, which includes repentance and faith, but we're going to get to that in just a moment. Well, still at this point, she has no idea what Jesus is talking about. I mean, put yourself in this woman's shoes right now. She realizes he's a Jew, probably remember because of his clothing, tassels, we talked about that. And she's struck by the fact, really probably amazed that he's not following the normal Jewish Samaritan protocol here, okay? He, he's making these strange offers about gifts from God and living water. And, and then he's telling her that he is the source of the living water. And she has to be thinking, this is so weird. I mean, this is kind of absurd. What, what is this? Who is this guy? So naturally she, Human nature, she reacts with a bit of sarcasm. Look at verse 11. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? She's thinking, maybe the heat has gotten to this guy. Right? I mean, what in the world is he talking about? And then her scorn is, Elevated in verse 12, she says next, you are not, <coughs> excuse me, not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. You, you know what she's saying there? 
Who do you think you are? What are you talking about? This this living water is a gift from God. You, You don't even have anything to draw the water with. Are you superior to Jacob? Who who gave us this well and has been here ever since? And Jesus, as he does, God man, he responds with mercy. He responds with patience. And here we move from unsolicited mercy to unparalleled blessing. Look at verse 13 and 14. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The the visual picture in the Greek of springing up should be that of Old Faithful when it shoots off at up at the uh, whatever that park is up there. I forget the name of it. You know what I'm talking about. So now he's getting really outrageous. Giving me water that, that gives me eternal life. What is this, Ponce de Leon? This is, what is this? I'm going to tell you, it's the unparalleled blessing of God that is promised to every sinner when they are evangelized. Now, right here, this this still isn't making much sense to her. Look at verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. I mean, come on. That's really more sarcasm, isn't it? Okay, give me the water because obviously, I mean, you give me what you're talking about. I'm not going to get thirsty ever again, and I'll never have to come back here either. I'll never have to run into those women at any well if if you give me that. She's, she's playing along with him, but there's that dose of sarcasm that's in there. Now, that ends our review, and now that's where we left off. So let's pick up the ball and move down the field. At this point, it's highly likely that the woman turned with her water to go back to the village, wondering about this character with his strange claims. And I say that because Jesus calls out to her. Look next in verse 16. He said to her, go, call your husband and come here. Now, now that's a bold command from this guy. But you, you have to understand that this is Jesus. When Jesus spoke, it's, 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 it's given to us in other parts of scripture. When he spoke, he, he spoke with an authority that nobody ever in world history has ever spoken with. It never will. So when he said, go, call your husband and come here, she, it, it hit her. It impacted her. 
his authority. And, and that's why I say probably she was on the way with the water because this is not making any sense to her. And then next in verse 17, she responds correctly. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And that brings us to the next point. Unhesitating conviction. First we had unexpected condescension offered, unsolicited mercy granted, and unparalleled promise given. Now, stop right there. If you had a person at that point where she is right now, pray a prayer that you don't find anywhere in the Bible. You might well have a false convert on your hands. Because there's something that hadn't been dealt with yet. What hadn't been dealt with yet is her sin. If you evangelize purely based on the gifts of God, everybody signs up. Who doesn't want peace in their life? Who doesn't want joy? Who doesn't want purpose? Everybody is looking for that. And they're looking in every place, but the only place where they can get it. And that's in Christ. The Bible says no man seeks after God. It means no man seeks after the God of the Bible. All people seek after the benefits that God has. Peace, purpose, joy, and all the rest. <clears throat> so we get down to this point of necessary conviction, which was necessary for all of us. And this will change her entire perception of Jesus and confront her sin in a very direct way. And you know, this is critical. This is essential. To bring a person to, to face the guilt of their sin and to feel the weight of divine, holy justice to be measured against the holy law of God and to be told straightforwardly that the consequence of that sin is that if you die without repentance and faith, you're going to go to a very real place the Bible calls hell. Because faith must be accompanied by repentance. And again, this is an adulterous woman. I mean, she knew the Old Testament law of adultery. Remember, they Samaritans accepted the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, as part of their religion. They were very confused, and thou shalt not commit adultery is in there. In fact, there's plenty in the Pentateuch about adultery, the penalty for it being death. So just like with all people, you... You can't stop with the blessings. It's good to put them in there. The gift of God, the living water, the eternal life. But you've got to go further with the bad news. Unless you want to make a false convert. Well, just like the rest of us in this situation, if we were in it, 
She doesn't want to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. I have no husband. Well, that, that was right. Okay. And, and Jesus acknowledges that at the end of verse 17. Look, Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband. It's not the whole truth because she really didn't have a husband. But when she says this, we now move to a mega shift in the conversation. Now there's no more talk of blessing. There's no more mercy talked about. There's not even a drop of that living water that he speaks of now. Because you better believe he gets us. Okay? And at this point, she's unwilling to tell the whole truth. So Jesus tells it for her. Verse 17 and 18, you have correctly said, I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. This you have said truly. Ouch. He gives her a nice gesture there at the end. This you have said truly. You have no husband except you just left out that little part that you've had five of them and you're shacking up with a man who's not your husband. Now, any any questions here about how Jesus feels about shacking up? You shouldn't have any. It's very clear. Now, divorce was very common among the Jews and maybe more so among the Samaritans. We can assume that this man lived, oh, this woman, I'm sorry, lived the kind of life where she committed adultery repeatedly, which led to repeated divorces, and she's now living with a guy she's not even married to. I mean, it's possible some of the issues were with the guys, but when you get to five and six, uh, let's just inject a little common sense here in our assumption that she was having some issues. Well, this changes everything because Jesus has just told her her history. And they've never met. She's never seen this person before. Remember back in chapter 2. Nobody needed to tell him what is in the heart of man because he knows what's in the heart of every man. He's the God man. He's the only God man. He has the attribute of omniscience. And here... Her sinful life has been exposed and she cannot hide. She's sitting here at this well and there's nowhere to go. And I am sure, I am certain, after catching her breath, after he said this, I mean, just think about it. Put yourself in her situation. How in the world does he know this had to hit her like a hand grenade? Think about it. Think about if somebody you never met, you never saw, take the internet out of the equation, came up to you and just told you some really intimate things. After she recovers, she has a great response. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. 
Her IQ just like went up a few notches, just right there. Now, he he's no longer this delusional stranger. Now, in her mind, he's a prophet, of course. The word per- perceive means to come to the knowledge of. So she came to know and believe at this point that at least he is a prophet because from her perspective, there's no way he can know all of this unless God is telling him and he, he knew her sin and her, her most intimate details and you're obviously a prophet and she wants more. So next she poses a question. Verse 20. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now, if you really think about it, you can fill in the rest of that sentence with a question. Where do I go to worship, Mr. Prophet? That's what she's getting at. That's the question. You're you're from God. Where do I go to worship? What, what we're watching here is that her soul is bowing slowly before our eyes Amen. is what's happening. And, and she knows now being with this prophet that being right with God is a matter of worship. So in this lesson on evangelism, we have seen so far the condescension, the mercy, the blessing, the necessary confrontation and conviction of sin to bring about repentance. But next here, what Jesus has to address is unacceptable worship. Unacceptable worship must be abandoned. And what he says to the woman in this passage is the way that you have viewed worship your entire life has to be abandoned. So this woman's asking, do I go to Mount Gerizim where the Samaritans have their temple or do I go to the Jerusalem temple? Verses 21 to 24, Jesus gives quite an answer. Let's read it. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Folks, that is the most monumental and definitive text in the Gospels on the matter of worship. Period. End of sentence. And it starts out, I want you to recognize, 
with a denunciation of the external forms of worship. This is something she she needs to know. I have conversations with people and and my Monday to Saturday and they when they start out, now I don't want to bash somebody else's religion. I have to say, whoa, wait a minute. If I'm calling out a false religion, especially a false version of Christianity, I'm not bashing. I'm telling you the truth. That's the best thing for you is for me, you to tell me. There's a reason why. All over the Gospels in the New Testament, beware the false prophets. On and on about, watch out for false doctrine. And so here, she needs to understand about this. Now, Samaritan worship on Mount Gerizim was, as I said, a, a corrupted form of Judaism. It had some Jewish elements to it, but it was it was false religion. It, it had parts of the Pentateuch all mixed up with pagan stuff that the Jews, when they had intermarried with these pagans, and it was just a big mumbo jumbo of false religion. So this woman goes back to her religion, back to her forefathers. She says in verse 20, our fathers worshiped in this mountain. But notice out of that, read between the lines. What you need to see here is she knew she needed to bow before God. That's why she said it. She she knew she needed to go to God and, and to bow her knee and to acknowledge him and she doesn't know where to go. All she knew was that external form of Samaritan religion. External religion is the only kind of religion all lost people ever know. Now she's stunned by Jesus' knowledge of her life. Her conscience right now is just, wow, it's working overtime. (laughs) She's been unmasked for what she is, the weight of guilt, which she spent a lot of her time certainly trying to avoid, has now it's just come down full force on her head. The reality then breaks in on her once indifferent mind. I need to be right with God. I mean, she's not even been thinking about this. She's just been going through the motions of life, going down to the well every day, in the middle of the day to avoid women, not to think about her guilt to press it down to get the water. But that's the start of the path to the living water and the eternal life. She wants to make her life right. That's what hit me. First thought that hit me. What are you doing with your life? She knows she needs to worship, but she needed to abandon all of her... misconceptions about religion. And that's just what Jesus addresses in verses 21 and following. Look, verse 21 starts out with, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. Now stop right there. There's the key. 
believe me, he says. An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Now, not too long after this, 70 AD, just as Jesus perfectly predicted, the Romans swept in, destroyed Jerusalem, crushed the temple. They don't leave one stone upon another. And that ended Jewish temple worship from that day to this day, right here today. And then you know what else happened? The Romans went into Samaria and the historical accounts tell us they went to Mount Gerizim and they slaughtered thousands of Samaritans on that mountain and brought an end to that worship as well. So Jesus here, oh, he's demonstrating that he's a prophet. He's giving a prophecy of what is coming. And it already now is in the sense that the new covenant at this point is almost in place because it's not long until it's ratified in the death of Jesus on the cross and his rising on the third day. So, Jesus gives a crucial answer. True worship is not about a place. It's not about a rite or a ritual or a ceremony of any kind. True worship is always about honoring God, obeying God, loving God, glorifying God, serving God from the heart in truth, in truth alone, which means it has to be according to his word alone. So he says, not here. Not in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And then in verse 22, he says, you worship what you do not know. Well, that's a critique of her false Samaritan religion. You don't even know what to worship. Then he says, we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. At least the Jews worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. And that means that scripture was given to the Jews and the Messiah comes through Israel. That's all that he means by that. It's not for the Jews only, but it's from the Jews. He's saying we have the right data. We have all the scriptures. We know the truth. I want you to understand that's not a commendation of Jewish religion because at this point it had become apostate and Jesus denounced apostate Judaism repeatedly throughout his ministry. But nonetheless, God had deposited the truth with them and through them, the Messiah was coming. So we have that. You don't even know what you're doing, he's saying to her. But in either case, whether you're in ignorance or our apostasy, it doesn't matter. Because the, the hour is coming. And now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Because there won't be a temple in any place, either of them, anymore. Because we need to understand what happened at the death of Jesus when that veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. That was the symbol of the end of the entire Old Testament system of external ceremonial symbolic worship. Jesus is affirming this. He's saying to this woman, hey, guess what? There are no more temples. 
There's no more priesthood. There's no more altars. There's no more vestments. There's no more sacrifices. No more candles and incense and all that goes with that, whether it's Samaritans or Jews, it all disappears. It all passes away. No more feasts, no Sabbaths, none of it. All that disappeared. The punctuation mark was made in 70 AD again. It's continued up until this day. And right now, today, in 2024, a demonic golden dome-covered mosque sits on top of the Temple Mount today and has for quite some time. But it's always been, though, if you go back and you read the Old Testament, it's always been that God wanted and desired worship from the heart. That's why God said in Amos, stop your songs. I hate your feast. I hate your Sabbaths. In Malachi, we see the same thing. It's always been about the heart. Remember this. All the symbols in the Old Testament that once pointed them in the direction of that heart worship and the Messiah are gone. Jesus is here. The types and shadows, not necessary. Not necessary then, not necessary now. It's good for us to go back and study them, to understand them within the context of who they're talking about. But now, every place is a sanctuary. And every believer is a priest in the sense of the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. As we understand it, Jesus ushered in a new era of worship that doesn't focus on externals or symbols. So we don't have statues and stuff in here. What is internal? What is real? What is genuine? All you need to worship is the truth in Scripture and a regenerate heart that is devoted to God and you can worship anywhere, anytime, any place, any day. Verse 23, But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. And then verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. We worship the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have to start with the truth about who God is. The truth about who Scripture says God is. The Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God. Three persons, any religion that says otherwise is a false religion. You don't even have to know anything else about that religion but that to know that it's false. You don't have to look at anything else. Denies the Trinity, false. The Father seeks true worshipers. That means they worship Him in truth. They worship Him according to who He really is as revealed in Scripture alone. God is not a man. He's not a mortal. He became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. The second person of the Trinity exists in his glorified body, but he is a Trinitarian God. He is spirit. And we worship him from the heart and spirit and truth. 
not in these obligated places that we have to go to, ceremonies and simples, certainly not in lies and misrepresentations. Now, we have a church that we gather in, but you can worship when you get in your car, Christian, on the way home. As long as it's in spirit and in truth. All of Scripture is God's self-disclosure. So we worship Him according to the Word of God alone. There are so many wrong ideas about worship in the church today. Somebody might say, man, you preach so long. (laughs) What's the deal? How, How do your people have time to worship? Somebody may say that. My answer to that is, well, your worship is informed by your understanding of God's revelation in his book. So we need longer sermons so that we know how to worship from God and his self-revelation of himself in his book. The deeper we go into the truth about God from Scripture, the higher we elevate in our worship. Superficial knowledge of God leads only to one thing, superficial worship. I think that was Steve Lawson who said something along those lines. But I want you to know this too. Worship is not music. People have got that all confused. Okay? Music is an aspect of worship. And we thank God for the two wonderful musicians that we have and Roger Dale leading us in music. But music's just an aspect of worship like preaching or sitting under preaching or praying are all aspects of worship. But in, in, in the big picture... Worship is honoring God, glorifying God in spirit and truth, loving God, knowing God, obeying God. Music, for example, is just one way that we express our adoration for God. You go to some of these churches, now we're going to worship and everybody jumps up and down and sings and thinks that the singing is the worship. Now and then get on to the preaching part and please hurry up so we can get to the house. So Jesus tells the woman that her worship doesn't require a place or a priest or a ritual or a ceremony. God wants you to worship according to the truth from the heart. So bow your heart. We would say, confess Jesus as Lord. And then we get the conclusion. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. Now, she knew this, of course, because Messiah is mentioned in the Pentateuch. Then she says, he who is called Christ. Oh, when that one comes, he'll declare all things to her. Now she's really moving on. Now she wants the full truth. Now she wants to worship from the heart in truth, and then verse 25. In an amazing moment, Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. And in the original Greek, there's no he. It's an I am statement. It's the name of God. 
I who speak to you am. The one speaking to you is the I am. Yahweh. This is the unveiling of Christ. This is the incarnate Christ revealed. So we've watched a progression that, that Jesus took this woman through, starting with his initiating the conversation. And as she comes to the point of repentance and faith, then Jesus reveals himself to her, this outcast, immoral woman that Jesus sat down to talk with, completely disinterested, indifferent, and now she wants to know nothing but about the truth. Now she wants to know nothing but about that living water that she was mocking him about earlier in eternal life. It's so clear to me. And it continues to become more clear to me every day that I live out the rest of my Christian life that there's no way you can get around it. Salvation is a divine work of God that he has to initiate. Regeneration comes before faith. There's no question about it. She didn't know anything at all about Jesus when this started. And now she wants to know everything about him that's possibly available so she could be a true worshiper. Now, how do we know that she was converted? We'll look down at verse 39 with me quickly. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. Many believed because of her testimony. As she believed, they believed. Look at verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. Can you imagine? Two days learning from Jesus, the creator of the whole universe, two days of theology of the God-man unveiling divine revelation so that they could fully understand the gospel. These hated and despised by the Jews, Samaritans. And then in verses 41 and 42, many more believe because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. That's what two days of teaching from Jesus gets you. Notice the word world. That that salvation had not just come to Israel, but to everybody. Even outcasts like them. The hated Samaritans. Now in closing, let me say, when we, when we have taken people through this kind of progression, initiating a, a conversation, if you unpack the blessings and the gifts of God, you then want to confront the issue of sin. You want to warn them to, to turn from false worship that they may be engaged in to turn 
to true worship and explain the difference. Explain, explain, explain biblically the person and work of Christ. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Once you, once you've done all of that, and guess what? You have to leave it to God to unveil the truth concerning himself. Only God does that work. That's what John has been teaching us all along. Oh, you're really going to see that in John 6 with such clarity. I, I could just get up here and read it and not even expound it. It's so clear. But the way that, that God has designed things is that it's our job to supply the information that he works with. That's his design. Think about these times that we live in right now. We have more distractions, more things to occupy our time and our attention and our energy than at any other time in human history. It's not even comparable. So, so how will anybody in these days ever be engaged in a gospel conversation unless you and I initiate that conversation? Give that some thought and let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this wonderful reality of what happened that day over 2,000 years ago at Jacob's well with Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And we see your divine hand at work. It's not only she believed, but a whole big group of these Samaritans believed. And you get all the glory for that. And so, Lord... The best instructor in scripture, of course, and example is Jesus. So he has given us a master class here in this text of how to engage people with truth, with your gospel. And I pray you give us all the boldness and the courage to go out and be those who proclaim that truth and then, Lord, we leave the rest up to you, trusting you to call your people in. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.